This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. I'd like to start off with two stories. Story number one is there was once a couple. The couple was Maishi and Shiva. They were very, very successful in everything that they had. They had a beautiful business. They had a beautiful home. They had, this is an older story, they had many horses. Not only were they extremely successful, but any simcha that the community had, they were involved in. They went, and whether it was a financial need, they went and they opened the checkbooks. Whether it was they needed just manual labor, they were there pulling and picking up everything. That Anything that was needed. They were the ones that you know, this was the pillars of the community. These were the people that... You looked at them, and you know what? You realize, you know, they deserve everything that they had. And that's why everybody was always wanting them to have only success, only amazing things. And everything was amazing except for one thing. Many, many years passed, and they didn't have any children. The years go by, and suddenly they hear, they get news, the words of the town comes out, that Shira, this, this woman, she's expecting. And everybody was so happy, so excited. They used to go, they would run over and they would give them the happy blessings and they would go and do anything that you need. You've done so much for us. What is it now that we could do for you? And they went and they tried to bend over backwards. But they, need, they didn't need anything. Moshe, the husband, made sure that she gets the top quality care, top doctors, top hospital, top nurses, top of everything of the line. The... Months go by, and it's time for her to give birth. She gets rushed into the hospital, and as they're rushing her in, the doctor starts looking at her and realizes something is off. Something is not looking right. They rush her right into, right into the labor and delivery room, and they tell the husband, you have to stay outside over here. The husband's like, why? Well, I know I could go. The, husband, the doctor's like, you got to stay outside. And the doctors are working over there. Meanwhile, the husband is sitting over there. He's starting to sweat. He's like, what's going on? Is everything Okay. And he gets very nervous, and he starts saying to Helim. And he starts crying to Hashem, please. An hour goes by, which feels like 10,000 years. Two hours go by, three hours go by. The doors open up, the doctor comes out, looking very serious. The father runs up, the soon-to-be father, or possibly father, the husband runs up, and he says, what's going on with my wife Shira? Is everything okay? And the doctor looks at him and says, you know, I don't have such good news. He says, you know, she's still in labor and she's had some serious complications and I could only save one. I could either save the mother or I could either save the baby. And the, the husband's like, what do you mean? You can't, you can't give me this choice. He's like, you got to save both of them. What do you mean? The doctor says, I can't. I've tried everything for three hours. I can't. I can only save one. So the husband goes and he says, I don't know what you want from me. And the doctor says, you have to decide. He says, I'm not deciding. He says, go ask your rabbi. Do something. I says, because I'm not deciding either. So the guy gets into his horse, goes and runs over to the, to the nearest rabbi. And he's a rabbi, and he gives him the whole story down. He's like, this is what's going on. This is my dear wife for 15 years. 
And now I have to choose between a potential child and my dear loving wife. He says, what am I supposed to do? And the rabbi responded in the same way the doctor responded. He says, he says I can't make that decision for you. He says, but I'll tell you what. Why don't you speak to your wife about that? It didn't even enter his mind. didn't even converse with his wife. He didn't realize he could. So he runs back to the hospital, runs into the doctor, and he says, can I speak to my wife? Is my wife still conscious? Am I able to talk to her? And the doctor says, yeah, she's not doing well, but you could speak to her. He runs in, and he sees his wife tied up to all these you know, wires and cables, and just like... It, Shocks it. it puts himself in a, such a situation where he realized the reality really just struck in. And he goes over to his wife, who's breathing very, very heavily, very labored breathing, moaning in pain. And he goes and he explains to the wife the situation. And he says, The doctor told me that I have to decide. I went to the rabbi, the rabbi told me that I have to decide. And I don't know what to do. I don't know what to decide. And I was racking my brain and I decided that I had made a final decision. My dear wife. He looks at her and he says, I choose you. And the wife, with the heavy labored breathing, looks at him and starts speaking. She says, my dear husband, we've been waiting for 15 years for a child. Our whole life has been centered around one focus and one focus only, and that is I want a child. We both wanted a child. Now we have the child. Then what good is going to be if we're going to give this up? And the wife goes over to the husband and she says, you know, you had the right to choose, but I also have a right to make a decision. And she looks at him and she says, I choose the child. I want the child to come up. I'm willing to give up my life because if we live on, we won't have any more children. It doesn't look like that. It's going to ever happen. So at least now we can have a legacy. At least now we can have a continuation of our name. So please, tell the doctors that I too want to make the decision and my decision is that I want to go and I want to give up my life for this child. The husband tried to persuade her, but nothing was going. The woman goes and says, I have one condition to the husband. He says, I'm giving up my life, but bring my child when he's able to, or she's able to, bring her to the cemetery, show him or her my grave, and explain to her what I did to let this child survive. Not able to dissuade his wife, he goes over to the doctor, and he says the decision is we we choose the child. The doctor says, fine. He runs back in. Now meanwhile, you know, he goes and he, and he begs the doctor before he goes in and says, but do me a favor, try whatever you can to save both of them. The doctor says, I will try the hardest that I can, but I can tell you right now, only one is coming out of here. The husband goes out and started crying like he never cried before. He started davening, he started praying nonstop to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, please let both my wife and my child survive. Two hours go by and the doctor comes out. The doctor comes out and he goes over to the husband and he says, on one hand, I have to give you a mazal tov. But on the other hand, he goes over to him and says, I was only able to get one out. I was only able to get the child out. He says, mazal tov, you have a boy. 
And he takes this boy, and as hard as it was, he raises him to his best of his ability. He raises him to the ways that only you know, our forefathers directed him. And he goes, and as the boy gets older, he tries to speak to him about his mother and what his mother gave up for him. And the boy gets older, and he becomes bar mitzvah. And the father goes over to the boy before his first prayer that he was able to give from Inaminyan. And he goes over to him and he says, Now, now you could start repaying your mother back. She gave up your life. She gave up her life for you. Now you can go and now you could say Kaddish for her. Now you'll be able to go and you'll be able to go and raise her neshama for all that she has done for you. And the boy nods his head and he goes up. And the father is thinking, this boy, what is he going to do? The Kaddish that he's going to give is going to shake the world. Where else do you have it? That the mother literally gave up her life thinking that now tears are going to come down. And the boy gets up there and he starts Kaddish. He says it in a low, muffled tone. No emotions. Nobody could hear him. Nothing, as if he was just mumbling off the words. And he finishes the Kaddish, the father goes over to him. And he says, I don't understand, this is your mother that you're talking about. This is the mother that you're saying that gave up her life for you. How could you not even shed a tear? The 13-year-old looks at him and says, my dear father, he says, what do you want from me? I never knew this woman. I never knew her. I don't know her, I've never seen her, I've never spoken to her. How could I have emotions for something or someone that I've never spoken to? We come on Tisha B'Av. And we know it's a sad day. We know it's a day that we're supposed to cry. A day that we're supposed to mourn. The most common question that I get asked to me today. How? How am I supposed to mourn? I've never met the Bet HaMikdash. I've never met all the Kobanot that was able to be given there. I've never seen it for crying out loud. So how am I supposed to relate? I want to share with you another story. There was a couple who lived together very happily for 20 years. But this couple too, unfortunately, they cannot have children. And they went to every doctor, every specialist to see what they could do. No Money was no, no matter. They were willing to do anything to just have a child. They went to all the rabbis to get all the blessings. The doctors all told them the same thing. It's not going to happen. The rabbis all told them the same thing. They said, pray. What else can we do? Just pray. Daven. Daven to HaKadosh Baruch So, a year goes by, still having hope, nothing. The years turn into 10 years, to 20 years. It's 25 years go by, and there is no children. And then suddenly... Out of what it seemed to be unexpected, she's pregnant. She's expecting. And they're so excited, they're so happy, they're crying, talking to this brother, please let this child survive. Please let this child make it. It was a difficult pregnancy, but the child survived. The child made it. And they were so happy. And whenever somebody wants something so badly, and they, tr- they try so hard to get to it, when they finally get it, 
Oh, they treat that something or that someone so differently. If someone's trying to get married and they don't get married till they're older, oh, they could appreciate the wife. If someone didn't have any children for so long, and all of a sudden they had children, oh, do they treat that children differently. They gave this child everything. The entire kishkas went into this child. The entire blood and tears, everything was into this child. This child was, had everything at the top of the line. And they thought this was the golden child, this was the only child. Two years go by, and she starts, the mother starts feeling not so well again. And she's like, you know, stomach, she was nauseous. She's like, you know what? Maybe I'm pregnant again. And lo and behold, she was pregnant again. And she had another healthy child. Ten years go by, they have four children. The youngest being one and a half years old. And because the mother thought or realized that how does she have these children? These children, because of all the sweat and tears that she cried to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that's why she has these children. So she realized the power of prayer. She never stopped praying for these children. And everybody knew, when mommy is davening, nobody interrupts. Because everybody knew that mommy's prayers, mommy's tefillot have such a strong power. A year, the youngest child is a year and a half. And suddenly... The woman, the mother, starts feeling nauseous, stomach ache, like she starts feeling not so good anymore. She's like, oh, Baruch Hashem, maybe it's another one. And she takes a test, she's not pregnant. She goes to the doctor, the doctor takes some tests, says you're not pregnant. But her symptoms got worse and worse, till suddenly the doctor says, wait a minute, if you're not pregnant, we have to run some more tests. And they run some more tests, and they come back with very, very unfortunate news. I'm sorry, you have a malignant tumor inside your stomach. And it's become to a stage that it's inoperable. They go to her and they're like, there's nothing that we can do. And the husband, the children, they're like, what are you talking about? There's nothing to do. We have to try everything. Give us any treatment possible. They went from doctor to doctor to doctor and every doctor told them the same thing. There's nothing that we can do. Finally, one doctor goes and says there's experimental treatment says, it's going to be very, very painful, very difficult. I recommend you not to do it. The father says, how could I let my wife die? How could the children not grow up with the mother? I want to do whatever it is that I can. And they started the treatments. The treatments went on for a few months. And the doctor goes and says, I'm sorry. It's, it's not successful. He says, we, the best thing to do is take her off the treatments. Let her live out her last few months with the family in an easy mindset. This treatment is just going to make her life more difficult, more complex, and more painful. Pushing as much as they can, they realize that this is the only solution. So, they went, and they brought the mother home. Now, before the mother was sick, the mother, again, like we said before, had so much of a desire for the children, because she waited so long for them, that she went, and she set up, everybody had a mommy and me time. Every one of the four children had a, a day that they just spent with her and their mother. And the mother went and they spoke to them and they took them for ice cream and just bonded together. The weeks go by and the doctor says, it's a few days. So she decides that she wants to have one final mommy and me time with every child. She brings in the oldest daughter and she starts telling her, she says, you know, mommy's not going to be here that much longer. And the daughter starts crying. She's like, mommy, mommy, please don't leave us. We need you. 
And the mother says, I wish I want to stay. I want to stay, but what can I do? Agadosh Baruch wants me up there. And she spends two hours with this child, saying, don't worry, even though that I'm not going to be here with you, I'm going to be with you up in Shemayim. I davened you for you over here, I'm going to be davening for you up there. And non-stop, the mother is going and she's crying, and the daughter is sitting there and crying, and they embrace, and they're trying to give the final words of goodbye. But how could you say goodbye to your dear mother? She couldn't leave. The mother was getting weak. She says, my dear daughter, please. says, let me speak to the other children first. The next boy comes in, and the same scene replays itself. The mother is crying, the boy is crying, and the mother is explaining to each and every child, Mommy's going to be taking care of you from up there. Two days later, she returns her soul to her maker. The Leviah was brutal as all Leviahs are. But one of the things that stood out was that she had right now a two-year-old. And the three older children are sitting there and crying, Mommy, Mommy, they're crying for their mother. And the little two-year-old child is sitting running and playing. Looks at them, they're a little sad. He's like, why are you sad? You know, like, mommy went up to Shammai and they're trying to explain to her, like, oh, mommy went to go buy something in Shammai and they couldn't, she couldn't even comprehend, the little baby. And now while everybody's crying, this little two-year-old is sitting and laughing, enjoying, maybe they feel that something is wrong, but they can't understand, they can't comprehend. Now we come to Tisha B'Av and... Some people just want to pass the time. What are we going to do to pass the time? What are we going to do to entertain ourselves? What are we going to do to be able to push off some time so we can get through the day? And we sit over there, maybe we joke a little bit. Maybe we laugh a little bit. You know what that compares us to? That's the two-year-old child. We just lost the base on Migdash. They just lost the connection to Akadosh Baruch Hu and we are, we're sitting over here laughing. You know, playing, passing time. I shared with you these two stories because I wanted to share with you the difference between these two stories. The first story was a 13-year-old boy. The second story, I want to focus on that two-year-old. You go over to the two-year-old and you try to explain to him, your mommy's not here anymore. The two-year-old can't comprehend it. They can't understand it. They can't, uh, you know, no matter how much you can explain to it, they can't comprehend it. They can't go and envelop it to understanding that mommy's not coming back anymore. But when you go to the 13-year-old, you say, how come you're not crying for your mother? How come you're not crying for the person that gave up his life, her life for you? And the 13-year-old says, what do you want from me? I never saw her before in my life. I don't know anything of her. The 2-year-old could say the same thing to a certain extent. But what can you say to the 2-year-old? But to the 13-year-old, you could say, but why didn't you ask? Why didn't you look at pictures? Why didn't you speak to your father and say, how, what, how, what was mommy? Why didn't you go and learn a little bit about her? You know, we come and we say, how are we supposed to go and get through the day? How are we supposed to mourn? How are we supposed to cry over the base of Migdash? So we have to ask about the base of Migdash. We have to realize what we lost. So I want to go through a little bit about what we lost in the base of Mikdash, to realize what we're mourning for. And in fact, to, point, to bring this idea even for, a little bit furthermore, in June 1967, Israeli paratroopers were able to take over 
the Kotel, the Kotel HaMaravi. They were able to take over. And imagine the scene where you have the western wall, the last remaining wall of the Beit HaMikdash. The Beit HaMikdash is sitting over there and the, the Jewish people come in and they finally, it's under Jewish control. All the religious, all the from Jews, Jewish soldiers, they ran up to the Kotel, they started kissing it and crying. The secular people, they don't know any better. They don't realize it. So they weren't crying. But there was one secular person who was standing very far away from the wall and he was crying. So they went, one of the from people went over to this Israeli soldier. And he says, Lama tabokhay, why are you crying? You're secular, you're like, well, you don't relate to this. So the secular soldier goes over and he says, Ani ani lo I am crying because I am not crying. Because I don't know why there is I need to cry. So I'm crying because I don't know why everybody else is crying, but I know I should cry. I know there's something here and that's why I'm crying. I'm crying because I don't know. We look and we start to study and realize what the Bet HaMikdash was. The Bet HaMikdash was the source of everything. You know, Jewish life centers around Judaism. If you're a religious Jew, you have to live in a Jewish community. You have to live near a synagogue, near a shul. You have to live near a kosher supermarket that you're able to buy. It's sent all centered together. Any other religion in the world, or the majority of the religions of the world, you want to be a Christian, you can live wherever you want. You can log on to the you know, Christian you know, church at Sundays via webcam, and you're a good Christian. You could go and you could do whatever you want. You want to be a good Buddhist, you could do whatever you want, no matter where you are in the world. Act the way you want, do whatever it is that you want, as long as you log in and do the things that you need to do. Judaism centered around Jews. Judaism. It centers around the source of what we have, the synagogues. You want to know what the source of the source of the source was? We're the center, the epicenter of it all. That was the Bet HaMikdash. That was the Bet HaMikdash when we had it. This is where, this is where everything started from. This is the source, this is the origin, this is the center of the Jewish universe. And in fact... Jewish people came to visit. They came, went on vacations. Nobody went to Miami. Nobody went to the Caribbean islands. On vacation three times a year, they went to Yerushalayim, to the Bet HaMikdash. To understand what the Bet HaMikdash was, you first understand that what, what was the concept of prophecy, nevuah. You, you know what prophecy is? You have a question. You're uncertain about something. You're not sure who you want to marry. You're not sure if you should get into this business. You have this, you know, the sickness. You want to go to something, so you go. And you go who to a prophet. And the prophet says, let me ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Let me look at the woman. Let me give you the answer. You understand, there was no sfekot. There was no uncertainty. You know how many machlokes we could avoid if we had a nevoah? You know how many troubles and sorrows we could avoid? Someone was sick. You needed to know what to do. You went over to the prophet. The prophet says, you fix this, you do this, and that's it. You know, you're going to be healthy. It was a different life. A life of uncertainty. A life of pure or pure joy, unadulterated joy. A life that you could go to sleep without any sin on your hands. You were able to go and bring a korban. You were able to connect to HaKadosh Baruch Hu in ways that we could only dream of. When we had the Bet HaMikdash, the gate of prayers were open. There was no such thing as a locked gate of prayers. You wanted something, you go and you pray it and you got it. To a certain extent. Now the Bet HaMikdash is the gates of prayer. We have to go all these roundabout ways to go and have our prayers answered. 
When somebody went into the Bet HaMikdash, everybody realized that there is a God. Everybody realized there is a Kadosh Baruch There was no atheist back then. You go over there, you realize God's presence so obvious. There were miracles upon miracles that were happening daily in the Bet HaMikdash. A simple one is that there will be a pillar of smoke. And anybody knows if there's a little bit of wind, the smoke moves very easily, very quickly. There was Kalbanot. This pillar of smoke went straight up. No matter, it could be the windiest day, it could be a tornado warning, it could be hurricane season, this pillar of smoke went straight up. The rains did not distinguish the fires. Funny here, like, one of the, the miracles that people just like mention it's very, you know, nonchalantly, but I feel like it's like a crazy thing, like when you think about it. It says that they were omdim tzfufim. They went and everybody packed into the Bet HaMikdash. But when they bowed down, there was plenty of space on each side. How do you get out? Imagine that you're squished. You think that you're, you took some sort of extra, you know, curricular herbal medicine or something that you, you, you come to that and say, you're sitting there all squished together. And then everybody bows down and then the nearest person to you is like eight feet away. But how did you get there? And be like, you know, and you get up again, everybody's back together again. It's like, whoa, what happened here? And bow down again, everyone separates apart. Do you understand the miracles? And this was normal. This was like, yeah, don't worry about it. It's clear right now, but don't worry, you'll have a breather once everybody goes down. Like, this was something that was common. You walk into the bedroom, that's, the miracles were normal. The miracles were the day-to-day. There was nobody who were like, where's God? No, you saw God every single time you went to the Beth Amikdash. When give you a little bit of an understanding on this. Imagine somebody had a family, very, very wealthy family, but old money wealthy. And they had a large mansion full of all their wealth. The paintings, the jewels, the diamonds, everything was in this house. For whatever reason, don't ask, it's a story, it wasn't insured. This family had everything. They had the prestige, they had the power, they had the wealth, they had everything going for them. Until one day, a fire broke out. And the mansion was ruined. That everything was gone. This is where you have a family that had everything one day, and the next day they had nothing. They had zero. They lost. They were on the top of the world in one day. The next day they were down to the ashes. That's how the Jewish people felt in the destruction of the Beth Amidash. One day we had everything. We were on top of the world. Nobody was touching us for so many years. Until, unfortunately, the sins crept in. Nobody was coming close to us. And then all of a sudden, we were, had such a connection to HaKadosh Baruch And then all of a sudden, we were all the way up here, and then we were destroyed to the bottom. We went to being the most respected of the nations. To slaves. When you look at the, the destruction of the second Bet HaMikdash, and even the first Bet HaMikdash, the stories that you go, and I, by the way, I just want to give you one point. The, you know, there's a, there's a Gemara in Sanhedrin that says that Rabbi Gamliel was one time sitting, and next to him was a widow, was a woman, I'm sorry, who was crying over the loss of her child. And she started crying for the loss of the child. Rabbi Gamliel heard this woman crying. And he started crying, but why did he start crying? He started crying over the Chuban Bet HaMikdash. He started crying over the destruction over the Bet HaMikdash. So Chazal, the Rabbanim, they go and they ask the question, but like, what, what connection? She's crying over a loss of a child. 
died young, so unfortunate. Why are you crying now off of the Beth Amidash? What's the connection? And the answer is that any single suffering that we have since the destruction of the Beth Amidash until today is for one reason, it's due because we don't have the Beth Amidash. If we would have had the Beth Amidash, we wouldn't have had that suffering. We wouldn't have had that destruction. Rabbi Gamil is going and he's crying. He says, you want to know why you lost a child? Because we don't have a Beth Amidash. All the tragedies that happen to Klal Yisrael, everyone, whether it's personal, whether it's communal, it's all because, well obviously there's, we're not a God's accountant, we know all the reasons, but for a big part of it is because we don't have a Bet HaMikdash. So we realize what we had when we had a Bet HaMikdash. When you look at the destruction of the second Bet HaMikdash, it's like you're reading stuff from the Holocaust. It's like you're looking at stories that you don't even realize belong in that time. We don't have that much time that I could go in a, into an elaborate description. But one point I want to focus on is the starvation, is the hunger. I was thinking maybe it's not the best thing on a fast day to talk about starvation and hunger. But here you're talking about in the time of the second Beth Amikdash, to the level of the starvation that they had, you realize... You know, we don't got it so bad today. The people, the children, were bloated. And not bloated because of all the food that they ate. What happens is that if you don't eat for a long time, your body starts reversing itself. And it starts expanding. You look at pictures of the Holocaust, you look at emancipated, you look at, you see the bones. You see the bones of the people, but the stomach all of a sudden looked like they expanded. The children were sitting there with skeletons. They had no food. There was a siege surrounding Yerushalayim. And not only there was the Roman government surrounding the Yerushalayim, the Roman army, inside Yerushalayim there was even more terrible things that were happening. The Jewish Kenayim, the Jewish Bilonim, the Jewish Zilats, they went and they also put a siege around Yerushalayim from the inside. Nobody was able to leave. These group of originally started as robbers of, of criminals, wanted to go and wanted to fight against the Romans. And anybody that stood in their way, they destroyed them, killed them, murdered them, took away their money, took away everything from them. The Jewish people were sitting in Yerushalayim, they were sitting over there, and they were stuck. They couldn't go outside the Romans. They couldn't stay inside because of the Zealots. They were stuck from both places. There was nowhere to turn. And not only that, they think at least you have a Bet HaMikdash which they did have at that point. But what happened? The Bet HaMikdash was taken over by Tzedukim, by people that didn't believe. They believed in God. They believed in the written law, Torah Shabbat Ksav, but did not believe in the oral law. And they started making their own interpretations. They took over the Bet HaMikdash. And you look at the Jewish people at this point, where did they have to turn to? They couldn't go out. They couldn't stay in. And the spirituality, well, there was nowhere else to turn. And they were sitting there were starving to a point that there was a very, very wealthy woman her name was Miriam, the daughter of Eliezer. Comes from a very wealthy family. She was sitting there and she was starving and she was going and she was begging people from the wealthiest family. She's sitting there begging people for food. She was her and her little baby. And she's begging for food. Please give me some food. And nobody had any food to give. There was nothing. There was nothing to give. Till finally she couldn't handle that anymore. She goes over to the nearest uh, you know, people that you see, and she says, please, take my life. Take mine and my child's life. What do we have to live anymore? We're suffering. And she would be begging people to kill her. 
She'll be walking, but please end this. I cannot live on. And everybody was like, what do you, no one's killed. They couldn't, they, they just thought it was a crazy woman. One day, they're passing by their house, her house, and there's a smelling of barbecue. Now what happened was that if somebody smelled food, everybody there, if you had a little bit of food, you ate it raw. Because if you smell the cooking of food, people will break down and grab the food away. If you swallow the food, they will try to choke you and give you the high milk to take it out to go and take the food from your mouth. That's what the level of starvation was. They go in over there and she sees that they're barbecuing. She's, she's barbecuing something. And the people break into our houses. You have food? You have meat? You have something? And you're not sharing it with us? And she's like, no, Bechavot, please come in. He says, have a seat, I'll serve you. And she puts out some plates of meat. Smoked, cooked meat. And they're like, where did you get this meat from? And with tears in her eyes, she turns over. And I don't know how to say this in a nice way. There was a dismembered child on the table. And she starts talking to this child. And she says, my dear child. He says, I couldn't give you anything to survive. But at least you can help your mother survive. And when the people saw that she was cooked her own child, they thought, this woman is crazy. They ran out of there. Nobody could even begin to eat it. But that's the level that the starvation was. People were falling dead everywhere. But there was no crying, no mourning that was heard in Yerushalayim. Why? Because there was nothing left for tears to come out. Nobody was able to mourn. Nobody was able to cry. The level of destruction that was going on. People dug their own graves and they sat there and said, they waited to die. Some people, what they did was is that they stood, they leaned on their backs, they sat on the floor and they looked at the, at the Bet HaMikdash and just waited to die. So they let the last sight that I have be of the Bet HaMikdash. This is weird. This is the, the, the sorrow end of the Jewish people. And it only got worse. Once the Roman came in, it went from bad to worse. And we try to go and we try to look to see how are we supposed to mourn? We can't be like that two-year-old who every time we try to explain, they don't understand. We're like that 13-year-old. Be like, so why didn't you go and you learn something? Why didn't you go and you open up some books on Svarim and read about what happened in the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash? Now you have it very easy. You have Torah anytime. You have Chazak. You have all these organizations that you don't even have to read. You just could sit there and watch and you have people that go and they're trying to explain to you of what the situation, the severity and the, 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 the saddest day of the year. They try to put you in the right mindset. That's not always enough. Because you know, you could sit in a class. You could be like, that was nice stories. This little guy screams a lot. I don't know what's up with him. You know, like you can have your own ideas of what's going on. It was good, it was not. You leave, you care. You information can be given to you. But the question is, what do you do with that information? You sit over here, and I see there's so many people here over here that were able to sit over here for, for quite a few hours. I know it's not easy. It's very simple to just get up and go to, to your house. You have Torah anytime. You have the ability to go and log in from your bed, from your couch. 
But you're sitting and you're learning, wherever it is that you're learning, whether it's at your home, whether it's in the Beth Knesset, wherever it is that you're sitting and you're learning. What are you going to do with that information? We have to go and we have to internalize it. And if you're able to, and I strongly recommend it, lock yourself in a room today for a little bit and start contemplating what we lost. Start contemplating the loss of the Bet HaMikdash. Put yourself in a mindset that you are really mourning for the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash. You know, when you look at the causes of the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash, I feel like it's imperative. Like, how could I go and speak about all that and not say how are we supposed to go and get the Bethamikdash back. There's a lot of Gemarod, Midrashim, Chazal, that goes and tells different reasons of why the destruction of the Bethamikdash happened. But the core, the core reason, and this is the reason that you hear everybody speak about, it's Sinat Kinam. It's baseless hatred. And that's why we don't have it. So yes, at one point we're mourning for the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash. We're sitting and we're putting ourselves in that right mindset. And making ourselves sit and mourn over the Bet HaMikdash. But on the other hand, we have to ask, but, but what are we doing to make sure that next year we're not going to be here? Well, maybe we'll be in Dar Hamet, but it's going to be in Yerushalayim. But we're not going to be mourning over the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash. But what are we going to do to make a difference? And this is something, which I'll give you a few ideas, but this is something that as I was driving here from New Jersey, I was listening to the classes that were going on, and every rabbi was telling you something else. And, and this is generally what happens. And then I was thinking, you know what, like, these are all great ideas, but how many of us step out of here today thinking, you know what, yeah, I'll do something different. Like we hear it, we understand it, we comprehend it, and be like, yeah, that's a great thing not to hate anybody anymore. That's cool. But you go out over there, you see your neighbor blocking your driveway, and you're like, oh, this person, again, you just sat through a whole day, and somebody, which I, I forgot who it was, I was hurting them. Maybe it was Rabbi Lati, was like, someone cut me off. You just heard it. Okay, we live in Brooklyn. Someone's going to cut you off, because someone's more important than you in their eyes. Yeah, something is going to happen, and you just sat over here, and if you go and you get upset right then and there, then everything, what, what, was the, what was the success of the day? Did you gain anything? So we hear things, and we will hear things, Bezat Hashem, throughout the day, of things that we have to, and we could, and we should improve. The question is, do we internalize it? I want to finish off with the concept of Sinat Chinam. Baseless hatred. What does that mean? Base? How do you hate somebody for no reason? You know how you hate somebody? Let's say somebody went and cut you off. Is that baseless hatred? I don't hate him for no reason. I hate, I hate him because he cut me off. Let's say somebody blocked your driveway and you hate him. It's not baseless. You have a reason. You know, he blocked my driveway. That's why I hate him. I don't like his face. That's not baseless. I just don't like the way that he looks. You have reason. What's baseless hatred? Everything is... You know what baseless hatred? Someone comes over to you and says, Hey, by the way, there is a person in Australia. I'd be like, I hate it. Before a guy said, I hate him for no reason. I don't know him, I don't know his name, I don't know anything, I just hate him. Maybe you could say that's baseless hatred. You have absolute no reason you hate him. But the truth of the matter is, is that every single hatred is baseless. Because we know that we have 
HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that is mashkiach and everything that's happening. Everything that's happening, God is overseeing it. And if someone cuts you off, that's because God allowed him to cut you off. If someone blocked your driveway, that's because God allowed him to block your driveway. If someone stole a business deal from you, if you don't like a person, if so- whatever it was, there's a reason for it. God is orchestrating everything. There's Ashkachapati, there's divine providence. God is looking at everything. So the truth of the matter is that there is no such thing as hatred for a reason. Because how can you hate him? He says, yeah, he did something. But no, 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 he didn't do something to you. He was a messenger. God did something to you. So maybe we could strengthen one area. That is our area of emunah. Realizing that no matter what somebody did to me, it's not him, it's not my wife, it's not my children, it's not my boss, it's not my partner, it's God. And if we start realizing that we have HaKadosh Baruch Hu that's overseeing everything. And on the other hand, we start mourning for the destruction of the second Bet HaMikdash. May in the merit of these things, may we have the Biat Kol Tzedek, the Mashiach coming, may we no longer be in mourning, and may the Mashiach be rebuilt very, very soon. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.